Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. In this week's episode, we sit down with Michael Bloxton. Mike spent several decades working in the telecom industry, and in this conversation, he helps us decode and decipher and learn about where exactly the bits that run our lives come from and how they move around. The digitization of our world, the development of the so-called Web3 concept, the advent of technology running all of our lives and businesses, or helping us to run our lives, our businesses, and pursue freedom and flourishing, that technology in its current form runs on a complex backbone and skeletal nervous system of wires, cell towers, and telecom infrastructure. So in this episode, we do our best with Mike's partnership to explore where our telecom systems come from. Mike is currently the founder of Nebulous Space, and towards the end of this conversation, he dives into some of the innovations that he's working on at the intersection of telecom, cloud computing, and space exploration. Without further ado, I'll kick it over to Mike and myself to explore where our telecom comes from. So, Mike, welcome to the show. I ask most of my guests as we're getting started, who are you in 2022? I know it's an existential question, but who is Mike Bloxton as we are entering the new year? We are in mid-January 2022. What are you working on? What are you excited about? And tell us a little bit more. Uh, first and foremost, uh, father and husband. <clears throat> Excuse me, father and husband. I am expecting uh, another child here in literally the next few weeks. So that is easily the most exciting thing I have going on in my life. Uh, although I have a lot of exciting things, being a father is uh, by far the best thing. Uh, I, I, I People say it's as, as an accomplishment. I don't think it's an accomplishment. Um, I think it's a gift and a blessing. And that's, that's definitely going in first and foremost. Uh, then besides that, I'm a space visionary is what uh, my, my friends and colleagues and uh, partners and employees consider me in, in our company. So let's go into that a little bit. What does space visionary mean? What does visionary mean to you? Are we talking visioneering, like the book visioneering and, and that whole concept? Or I'll, I'll hand it back to you. I'll let you dive into it. Uh, the simplest way I think about it is being able to see something that doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, you can take Disney's perspective on it with imaginary. Right. You're looking looking at something that doesn't yet exist as though it exists today. And then how do you go from there? I think even Kurzweil talks about in one of his books is like you go to the end state and then look backward. Where did you grab that concept from? The, the concept of, of, hey, I'm going to plant my feet in the ground. I'm going to try to look forward and then let me help help me. And I'm and I'm sure that this is this is part of your process. Maybe it's not. I might be talking out of turn, but. Once we've determined what the end state is, I'm going to go assemble the pieces to help us work backwards to get there. Where did you? Where did that first come into your thought stream? When did you? When did you realize that? Um, when and how did you realize that that's that that's your role? Kind of looking at the next frontier and then working in the current frontier to build towards it. I didn't. I didn't connect it as my role until recently, but I started doing it because I was lost at 18 years old. Um, grew up outside of Philly. Uh, Grew up so close to the train tracks, it doesn't matter what side I grew up on. 
Um, didn't go to a great high school by any means, was a minority at high school, got out to the real world. And, and I was, I, I was in a, an amazing position and realized as I looked at my friends and I looked at my family, the life that they were living and leading is not the life that I wanted to lead. So I was immediately met with how in the world do I get to where I want to be when I have zero understanding from this perspective, how to get there. There's no from here to there, um, path for me which was a challenge. Um, but then fortunately I was able to do some crazy things, packed up a car. My first, um, you and I were just talking about road trips. Uh, my first cross country road trip was when I was, I think it was just before I turned 19. And I convinced myself on a Wednesday that I was going to move to California from Philadelphia. I convinced a buddy of mine, my Friday was literally in the car at 3 AM on Sunday, driving with 300 bucks between the two of us. Um, out to California. We drove nonstop from Philly to Las Vegas, spent a night in Vegas, and then got to uh, uh, Ventura County. And that whole path, uh, while we were there, we ended up doing some things. I ended up meeting another really good friend of mine. His dad became one of my first mentors, and he lived this amazing life. He was just a, a, a salt of the earth, amazing person. He called himself a gardener. Um, <clears throat> he called himself a gardener, and the guy had bought a a landscape company out of bankruptcy for like 80 grand, built it up to being over a million dollars a month and then ended up selling it. And he did that two or three times when I met him. This is, this is over, over 20 years ago. And all I remember knowing at that time was I wanted his life. I wanted, I was like, I loved how he lived his life. I loved how he was with his family. All I knew was like, that was something that I wanted. So this is to your question. I was looking at where he was and I literally asked him, I was like, how did you get there? What was the path that you took? And then from his perspective, he was able to look back, connect it with me where I was. And he said, well, you're really good. You have the gift of gab. He's like, and you're good at sales. You should follow that. And, and it was years you know, to develop the skill set. But that was my first instance. It wasn't because I thought I could do it. It wasn't because I thought I had this great skill. It was because I needed to find a way to get to where I wanted to be. And it wasn't until I met him who had already gone through his own path. That he could then give me the the benefit of twenty hindsight uh, and twenty twenty vision. Okay, so that's to me that still sounds like we're in the current frontier. We're looking at what's at the bleeding edge of the current frontier, and we're we're looking within ourselves and saying, okay, how am I going to get there? But I know you well, and I know that now you're really looking, okay, what's next? And now you're looking backwards. So was there a shift that happened where you went from kind of looking at the current frontier and working yourself to? to try to facilitate yourself to get there to, okay, I'm stable. Now let's go look all the way forward. What, how did that, how did that come into your thought stream? If that makes any coherent sense. Oh, it, I know it, it absolutely does. does. Yeah. Now your, your, your questions as always are good next. Um, so <clears throat> for me, you know, I just described this point where I had $300 and I was in a Volkswagen across country at 19 Fast forward to 25, I was the VP of a national finance group, and uh, we were, it was a boutique finance company financing cell towers. It also happened to be 2007 when I got that promotion, and then obviously 2008 happened. However, I got to a point in 2007, it's like, all right, I got this, this badass promotion. I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I'm driving at that point, what was my dream car, a CL55 AMG. I've got a beautiful girlfriend. I'm living in West LA. Like, you couldn't have written it any better for a kid with no college degree background from Philly, like to get to that point. Sorry to interrupt. However, I think that Will Smith wrote a song like this. 
<laughs> West Philadelphia, born and raised. Tell oh, the yeah. yeah. Spent most of my days. I mean. Absolutely, man. It's <laughs> it's true. I, I, he and I are must be kindred spirit spirits. Um, so so at 25, you know, I have accomplished all these things, all these things that everybody else is like, this is what you need to do. This is why you go to college. This is why you get good jobs and do all this stuff. And I remember sitting there like having this quarter life crisis, existential crisis, like there's got to be more than this. Like I went out and I did all these things. There has to be more than this. And I ended up getting into basically like, you know, I, I reached, I looked for my next coach, the next person, you know, that I could, that, that could help me navigate this weird area of like, why am I here? What is purpose? All these other, you know, metaphysical type things. And that was the shift for me. It was, it was like, all right, I, I can't be 25 years old and have already accomplished everything I'm supposed to accomplish here. There has to be a lot more. So for me, that, that was that, that shift where I started looking into the realm of possibility beyond what is currently thought of as possible. Let's dive into your role at that VP of VP of you said sales. So was this was this in the telecom industry yet, or or was this a different role prior to the telecom industry? Oh no, this was this was squarely in the uh, it was it was VP of the National Finance Group, and uh, VP of national at what company? Like what what was uh, the what was the business? A finance company called Wireless Capital Partners. So Got it. wireless, obviously telecom. <laughs> um, Interestingly, side note, I ended up, it was uh, my friends caddied for the owner, the largest owner of that company. And he said to my friend, he's like, I got a 23 year old kid making 300 grand a year. And my buddy came home and told me that story. And again, I'm, I'm 20, I'm 20 at that time. And I'm like, I don't care what this guy's doing. I'm going to figure that out. They wouldn't hire me. Let's, let's start off with that fun story. Uh, they were like, wait, wait, I was way too rough around the edges. Like they didn't want me representing their company in any way, shape or form. I applied six times. I finally get approved to be an intern for them in Connecticut. So I ended up moving up to Connecticut and I'm working for the second largest owner of the company. And I, that's how I learned everything that they're doing. So they ended up uh, um, in short, that particular company was financing the property owner's interests in a cell tower lease quick clarification what do you mean when you're talking about cellular cell towers what is a cellular lease how does this whole ecosystem work if you could break that down for us it would be fantastic and then we can circle back to this leg of the conversation the term cell from cell tower comes up because when you look at radio frequency signals and if you if you were to look at a map and you put a tower in a spot it creates a a um, a cell, you know, an area by which that cell tower can communicate. And then if you look at where you want to put the next tower, you want to put it at the edge of that cell. And it ends up looking like if you ever, ever seen a, you know, a graph or, or skin down, it looks like a bunch of cells. And I think that's part of the reason why they call it a cell tower. It is the network is, is a cell and a cell and a cell and a cell. Uh, so, so most people don't realize that there is a, the RF engineers are the, what was termed, you know, the golden goose. If you could understand from an RF perspective how this one tower, this one unit, could then connect to the next unit and create this whole network, that and then you'd be able to understand where the network was being built and all that other stuff. Um, but that's why we have a cell tower network. And and the other big thing that I don't think a lot of people realize, I don't think we should go into this just yet, but uh, we should peel the peel this onion as we go. Cell towers are wired. They themselves work. All you're getting is a last mile connection. We hear okay. a lot about 
What yeah. I'm understanding is I have, I'm 2007, right? So there's still spotty cell coverage. I drive up to my local Jewish community center. And every time I, I pass a certain street in my neighborhood, the cell signal drops like clockwork, circa 2006, 2007. I, I remember it very clearly. And you're, you're working with cell towers. And the way that the cell towers work is there's a, a little, there's, there's, a, there's a physical tower. That tower puts out a radio radio frequency of you know an electromagnetic signal that then your phone and the hardware in your phone or your cell phone is able to connect to, and then you're able to hear someone talking over that radio frequency to your phone connecting to the cell tower. Is that is that the gist of it? That's the gist of it. Okay, perfect. So back to you. We're now talking about how the cell towers actually connect to everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. So those cell towers, it's a really good example, right? So at the time, in now, now the maturity of everyone's network and everyone right now is just Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, right? 2006, 2007, there were, there were several other players and there's been a lot of consolidation. The maturity, the maturation of that market was uh, really a, a, a land grab to consolidate networks and consolidate customers. So your experience is what all of us experienced and mine even almost a decade before that where they only had one cell tower and it could only cover so much. And they usually tried to make it along like I-95 if you're on the East Coast or, or the 101 um, or 405 or the 5 on the West Coast. Or, um, yeah, obviously several routes in between. It was sparse. Like, another, another, yeah. another question interjecting. Mm -hmm. I really want to understand this concept because I think it's so critical. And after we dive down this rabbit hole, I want to zoom out and maybe come back around for the for the listeners. And I have some thoughts on the way that the whole telecom industry works that I'd love to share with you and hear your thoughts on, but just to really hone in on this. So, so there's three players who control the industry now. Back then, when you say they, can you describe who you mean when you say they? So they put the cell tower here. Is it the the company that your, you know, your cell, your cellular network is connected to that they own the tower? Or is there someone else that owns the tower and the infrastructure is kind of separate from the company? How does that work? Who is the they in this situation? So that's a that's a question that needs to be framed by time. If you go back far enough, the they was Ma Bell, period, and full stop. Ma Bell was deregulated, um, and Ma Bell did the land grab too. And you had a centralized entity for Ma Bell back in the telephone era. Uh, era because you needed a crazy amount of capital to put telephone poles every thousand feet. I mean, it's insane if you think about what the U.S. was able to accomplish putting up a telephone pole and then running wire across the entire country. Uh, it, you needed you needed a centralized company that could manage that entire process. Once that was built and you started getting into competition and things like that, it was deregulated. Deregulated means they broke it up. Uh, the first, I think, big de deregulation in our history was oil. When, when they went after Rockefeller. And apparently, you know, something crazy like his wealth doubled or tripled once he was deregulated, um, uh, which is a whole different concept. But Mao Bell went through the same thing and they deregulated and you, you ended up creating different, different companies based on some of the assets so that it wasn't necessarily quite competing, but it allowed different companies to go in different directions. And then you ended up having other companies start because they could actually compete. If you didn't have this one monolithic huge company where they could just crush you no matter what you did, no matter where you entered, uh, that was the real reason it was deregulated. And then you had some startup companies and, and companies in 2006, 2007 were, were Sprint, 
where Nextel, neither of, of, of whom really exists today. Um, I can't even think of anyone. You had a bunch of local or regional cell towers. There was a cellular one. There was um, USA cellular. Uh, this is this is East Coast stuff because again, I didn't. I don't even know who they were at that, that time. Uh, but there was there was dozens of companies, regional companies, and then and then the the bigger companies that were there. There was your specific question though was about the infrastructure. Yeah. So, the, so the, who owns the infrastructure? So like that physical infrastructure, you say Ma Bell, they they laid all the lot the, the telephone lines originally, and then they got deregulated, and now there's a bunch of different companies that own the telephone lines and the telephone cables. Do they own the land that that's on? So there's there's three basic parties yeah. um, in this industry. There is the property owner, which is rarely the actual infrastructure hardware owner. Then there is an, an infrastructure player. There's there's today there's Crown Castle, American Tower, um, and then some smaller players in there like SBA. Uh, but there's 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 some there's still some smaller players in the tower infrastructure piece, <clears throat> where they'll go out they'll they'll lease the land or get an easement on the land, so they won't actually even own the property. Although everybody at some point touches every piece of this thing. Um, but traditionally, there's a property owner who's just a guy like you and I who happen to own a piece of property, and somebody, whether it was you know Verizon or American Tower, came and knocked on their door and said, "Hey, you see that piece of those two parking spaces way in the back, or that rooftop up top? You're never going to lease those out for a lot of money. I'll give you a thousand dollars a month for that." And obviously, a property owner is like, "Well, I was never going to get a thousand dollars for the space on my roof or the space in that parking space, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll lease it to you." And you being either again the tower infrastructure company or the actual cell tower company, and almost always it wasn't directly the cell tower company. They were bidding it out to a bunch of other you know local you know manufacturers or, or company subs to to build the tower, and then they would acquire it at the end of that that construction phase. So there's there's the property owner, there's an infrastructure player, and then there's the cell tower company itself. So there's there's three major major players. Where I came in is actually a, a financier, you know, finance play on, that we played in, in that whole area. And there's a an interesting position. What I shared with you earlier is they were financing the property owner's interest. So this company was financing and putting themselves in position as the property owner. Now, in certain certain ways, being the property owner puts you in the power position where you are in control to be able to do different things and negotiate different things on your behalf versus, you know, on the cell tower behalf. So there's a whole, whole thing we could peel on that side. But again, the infrastructure that, that your cell phone connects to isn't necessarily owned by the, the, the cell tower company uh, that you're, that you're paying for the service and, and subscription service. It could be owned by somebody else. And then there's leasing agreements between them and all that stuff. Okay, a lot of onion to peel. Uh, just, nice. just so we really understand your role in that in that industry. And again, I very much appreciate this. this is a, I love this conversation, and there's a, I have a lot of questions. So, just to understand your role, what you were financing. How did that financing mechanism work? You were you were you were you were giving. You were the one paying the interest to the to the landowner in exchange for like power of attorney or something, and then you were getting paid a higher interest from the from the folks who were who were leasing the land or how did that work so so let's say you owned a piece of property that yeah. had a cell tower and you signed a lease and all that stuff you're allowed to sell the property like no one can stop you from selling that property. Yeah. so let's say you want to sell that property to me 
in the lease agreement, you're allowed to assign your rights and obligations in that lease to somebody else. Yeah. And the way that this finance company did it is they they took assignment of that lease. So they didn't take ownership of your property, but because of the way the lease was structured, they could take assignment of that lease and insert themselves as the as the uh, lessor in that scenario. Got it. I understand. Okay, cool. So there's no one who really directly controls the cellular infrastru- infrastructure, particularly the network as a whole, because the towers are sort of distributed among all of these different property owners. And then these larger players come in and then they, they quote unquote, operate the network, so to speak, or they, they build the towers and operate the network, so to speak. Um, how do they actually connect to each other, these towers? So you were talking about the hardwire. So if we could loop back around to that, what are they hardwired to? Are the towers talking to each other like via RF or are the towers talking to each other via hardwire? What is the, the backbone of that network look like? So the backbone of the network today, in my opinion, is actually fiber optic. So you you end up having a fiber optic cable for each sub tower that connects them into the network, connects into the data center. They are also connected via cellular. There was a, I don't know if you remember the, uh, geez, what was the term? That was uh, analog versus digital, remember? Analog, this is going back 25 years. Analog cellular versus digital cellular had, had to do with the equipment and how they were communicating the connectivity between you and the cell tower, but also the cell tower to cell tower. So the term to, to kind of tie that to today, the term we use today that we're thinking about is 5G, just means fifth generation. And you go back generation after generation after generation, and that is literally corresponding to an exact set of hardware that is on top of this tower or on, a, or on top of a roof that has that hardware that allows you to communicate. So if you think about it um, from a from, from a, a rude, very rough estimate, it's like having a gas car as one generation and having an electric car as a different generation. It's a completely different set of hardware. And then making like compatibility from your cell phone to those different things. I don't know if you remember the days with Nextel, you couldn't just do Nextel. That was a completely different set of hardware and technology than what we did with like CDMA, which I don't even remember what that means anymore, uh, which, is, which is the cellular side of things. Well, so, I remember. I remember on that note. I remember there was a CDMA, and I don't remember what the other acronym was. I I don't. I despise acronyms too much. GSM, I think. Yeah, something like that. And like you couldn't use a, a a an iPhone with Verizon for a while because of the CDMA compatibility or something like this. I remember that was a that was a design for compatibility issue at some point that I encountered in my in my teens or my tweens. Oh yeah, yeah. So so the. So what most people don't realize, tying the concept of what we're talking about, wireless, right? The wireless industry. I, was, I worked for Wireless Capital Partners. We were doing, you know, all this wireless stuff. We live in a wireless world. We absolutely do not live in a wireless world, like whatsoever. The last mile, the last little bit is wireless. Even, you know, whatever you're connected to right now, you may be Wi-Fi to a router, but that's hardwired via cable or, or uh, fiber into a network. And I think most people just don't conceive like the this whole CDMA and and analog all that stuff. That is a hardware issue. And and again, this this correlates to what we're doing today with cloud computing. People think the cloud is like this mysterious place, like wireless. It is a set of hardware sitting in a warehouse somewhere. There is a direct connection between hardware and cloud, just like there was a direct connection between being able to run the iPhone, the, the iPhone on AT&T or Verizon's network because of the actual hardware that's there. And I think you know, to your point with, with the whole mission that you have with where stuff comes from, 
people just miss the concept that like this shit goes down to, you know, chemistry uh, and actual minerals in the grounds to be able to connect the way all this stuff does. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole concept. We've become very complacent, um, particularly in the United States, not saying anything about individuals and, and I love America, but as a whole, we become very complacent and we've stopped asking these questions and it makes us very vulnerable when we don't realize that the tools that we use that are critical to run our business, to run our lives and to keep us, and to keep us alive, that they have to come from somewhere. Not only is there physical infrastructure that underlies the, the network right now, the cellular network, as you just illustrated, thank you for sharing that. And I want to loop back around to that and zoom out a little more meta in a second. Um, actually I have a few rapid fire questions and then we'll go meta, but what we don't realize is that the network is there. Number one, it's a physical system of fiber optics cables. It's a physical system of hardware. I want to ask you about Huawei in a second on that note. Um, and it's a physical system of these giant freaking towers that live on land that someone controls. And then beyond that, well, the land no one makes, but someone has to build the tower. Someone has to build all the hardware that goes into the tower. Someone has to build all the fiber optics cables and lay those cables. Someone has to mine all the minerals that go into those cables because they're exceptionally esoteric and very complex from a material science background. Manufacturing them is not easy. There's a whole rabbit hole we can go down about manufacturing higher quality fiber optics in space, but I'll save that for another half of the conversation. Um, you have to manufacture all this. You have to mine all of this. And it's an exceptionally complex system that we've been able by some miracle to, to engineer. And it's cool to talk to you with your frontline perspective that you've gained through your, through your, through your career in this space. So zooming out a little more meta, um, actually rapid fire questions, then we'll go meta. Let's talk about Huawei for a second. If you are familiar with it at all, you can say, Max, don't want to talk about this and we can, and we can cut it this out of the episode. Um, but if you are familiar with what happened with Huawei, I'd love to hear your take, and maybe we can paint the picture of what impact that had on the industry and what what, what all the what all the the fuss was about, and all the Wall Street Journal headlines were about, and all the TechCrunch headlines were about. So, from a, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Um, I'm very familiar with an aspect of it. Let's say that from a business perspective, you know, in the telecom industry that I was a part of, I was working very closely with, you know, when we financed the, the property owner's interest, we collected hundreds to thousands of these interests. And then we would use that and leverage that to be able to get fa more favorable terms against the, 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 the cell tower company. Um, and we would work constantly with, and even today I work with, you know, all these tower companies. What happened with Huawei which is a government-backed, um, Chinese government-backed entity that was doing a market grab. And you couldn't compete with it because it was so subsidized. And the goal wasn't to make a profitable business. The goal was to get access to data in, in, the, in the worst kind of way. So, so just, just so, a clarifying question there, Mike. They were, so what, what exactly were they grabbing market share with? at a loss? Was it the hardware? Was it the cell towers? Was it land in the US? What, what was it that they were doing or making or so, producing? So friends of mine, um, specifically in, in uh, developing countries who didn't have uh, a cell tower network and they weren't, the cool thing about being in a development country, developing country is you don't need to go back to, to basic technology. You don't need to put up telephone wires and telephone poles. They could jump right into cell tower networks. 
So friends of mine who were literally building bidding on building out, you know, hundred multi-hundred unit cell tower networks in, in island countries or developing countries, they had to compete with Huawei coming in and saying, oh, we'll give it to you for free. You just have to sign this thing and sign this thing and commit to, to this amount of stuff. What they really wanted was the control, the, the central control of all of the data that was moving across that network. And with that, they could literally do anything. I mean, this is like espionage, you know, I don't want to call it espionage 101, but it's it's the the king the subversion king 101. Yeah. <laughs> subversion 101. Yeah. So they would use financial mechanisms like going in for free. They would use like, oh, we'll finance it at a at a rate that you can't ever actually, you know, meet. And then we'll we'll then take control over it and we'll end up having an ownership stake in your core infrastructure. I mean, it was it was every level scary as fuck. And I'll say that with that term because it, that is as, as best of a term I can think of. For us in the United States, they had a they had different mechanisms that they were trying to do the same exact thing, where they were trying to get it. They were trying to play at a at a level by which made a lot more sense financially, but it was still subterfuge at the same at the at the, at the end of the day. That's all it was. So they were they were for all intents and purposes they were making the equipment and then they were trying to grab they were trying to come in at the lowest bid possible when one of the companies that in the stack that you mentioned were standing up new cell towers to get their equipment in there, or maybe they were even bidding to, to build the cell towers. And that was a mechanism for them to come grab the data and then use that to harm whoever they wanted to harm with that data, which is right. terrifying. So that brings me to another kind of meta theme. One of the core philosophical um, issues or, or uh, grievances that I have with the Web3 crypto movement is that there's this sense of, again, I think it had, there's some great technology being built there, but one, one of the cons that I see, there's a, and I'm going to piss some people off who listen to this <laughs> with this statement, but there's this sense of decentralization. And in my view, it's really this pseudo decentralization because you're not actually decentralizing anything. You're decentralizing the code base, sure. And this might tie into some of your work with cloud computing as well, but you're decentralizing the code base, you're decentralizing the software, and sure, it will live in a bunch of different spots. But that physical infrastructure of how that data flows from point to point is still very centralized. And a Huawei, or as I say, a Mama, a Mama AT&T or a Papa Verizon, they, in theory, from if I'm understanding you correctly, and from some of the prep I did for this episode and other research I've done, they theoretically, number one, can see all that data anyway, uh, assuming they have something powerful enough to break the encryption. We can talk about encryption too through these networks. And number two, if they want to shut it down, it seems to me like they can just shut it down. Um, they can shut these networks down. So can we talk a little bit about that, about how decentralized are these networks really? And what is what leverage does a, does a Huawei, not in the United States anymore, or a Verizon or an AT&T or whoever else are the players making the hardware, what leverage do they have to really uh, cause problems from a centralization and decentralization point of view? Not only applied to crypto. In a word, what, what power do they have? Massive. Uh, massive amount. I mean, there's there's literally an issue right now in I think it's Sweden, where they keep having a disconnect between their main cable. That's so 
So tying two things we're saying, you know, what we're saying right now about the vulnerability, what people think again is wireless world. If you took a picture of uh, drain the ocean and saw all of the transoceanic cabling connecting the world, it looks like the back of a 1990s, you know, TV center. If you remember with your VCR and all these different things, it was just like a spider web of wires. That's the world we actually live in here. So, you know, in, in, in war games from DOD, one of the first things they'll do is cut the cable, you know, cut the cable to your communication with the rest of the world as a, as a, as a war game uh, uh, exercise. The, if you remember a few years back, there was this whole tax on the internet thing. And that is because the companies like Verizon who had spent hundreds of billions of dollars building the infrastructure were trying to read more benefit. And the way they set it up, um, the reason they, they're, they're running into issues is because they set it up in a way and now they're trying to go back and change that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, we're going to put a tax. We're going to put a toll on your pass, pass through. Even though it was part of your, your service before, we're now going to start uh, taxing it, which would have completely slowed all innovation, I think, everywhere if that was the case. You would end up having tiered services. It would have been, it would have been bad. They have the control to do that. They have the, if, if there is a malicious intent, I mean, you could stop the internet today. Um, in, in just a, a few very simple steps, be able to stop the internet. The power grid is identical to that. It, it's extremely scary when you think about it. Question, clarifying question for you. Um, before the clarifying question, I also just want to make this make make the point that I'm not necessarily making. I'm definitely not. I'm vehemently opposed to the government having the centralized power instead of you know these telecom companies. Um, I'm vehemently opposed to that. I think no centralization would be much better and real centralization, not, not this false sense of security in this pseudo decentralization. So wanted to just go on record with that. And I, I, again, not saying that that's what your opinion is. It's just going on record with my opinion there while we're talking about this. The um, one clarifying point, can you maybe break down the difference between the internet and the cellular networks that we just talked about? Or is the internet running through the cellular networks? How do, or do they integrate and what does that look like? So again, you talked about decentralization and we, we also talked about centralization and we, we connected on an idea that wireless versus actual hardwired and, and hardware. A network by definition is multiple things. Like it, it's literally multiple pieces coming together. And the most general way that I talk about the internet today is breaking it down into three pieces. You've got data generation happening you know, with us right now at our laptops or on our phones or on the industrial machine. You have transport or communication of data, and that's happening primarily just over fiber optic cables and just over cell tower networks. And then you have primarily the processing. So, so from generation to communication to processing and processing, right now we have two basic types of data centers. You have a caching data center, because the network is so fragile, they, they created a way by which they put a data center as close to the human population as-, right. as Mental model time, who is they? Uh, the, all, all the people that are part of, party to this network. So if you're Verizon, for instance, and you're saying, well, hey, you can't keep live streaming all of this data across the network. It's, it's taking up all of the, the bandwidth. So nothing else can get through. We need to figure this out when you're watching you know, the, the latest cat video or the top Netflix video, that's sucking up bandwidth. And that doesn't allow some businesses to be able to access the hyperscale data center that's 3,000 miles away to start running what they need to run. Um, so so the, the caching data center and the, the hyperscale data center are two core components. 
And the, the caching data center is meant to go as close to the human population as possible to relieve the bandwidth. Now we have something like seven terabits per second capability broken into multiple channels across fiber optic cables. You don't need to know the numbers. It's just a lot. It's like a ton, a ton, a ton. Yet we still need to figure out ways to optimize our network. So you're doing more at the edge. You're doing more processing next to the machine. You're doing you know, as much caching as you can as close to the delivery. You're doing as much um, you know, channeling and breaking down of the bits and, and moving it out to the hyperscale data centers. Like there is, there is a tremendous amount of required um, optimization constantly to keep up with our, our human need for processing and computing and communication. So, so again, to simplify it, it's, it's data generation, data communication, and data processing. Those are very different companies. They're very different units. I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes a company is touching all of them. Sometimes it's multiple companies taking care of all of it. I mean, a network, again, by definition, is many things that are happening at the same time. There is, to consider it centralization, you know, Verizon has control over maybe your, your main gateway, the main fiber optic cable, but they're not necessarily in control of the data center. Maybe an AT&T data center. It might be a Microsoft or AWS data center. And they're, they may not be the end provider either. There may be other people that are running the software. So there's a whole lot of pieces to this. Again, going back to the point that it just is not simple. It is not as simple as, oh, complex systems. Yeah. So it seems to me very complex, very distributed system where a few big players have a chokehold on very key critical um, single points of failure, so to speak. Um, yes. And so within that distribution, there is still that, that chokehold and uh, on centralization of a few key assets said, said a different way, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just some terminology so I, I can learn what's a hyperscale data center. What does that mean? Um, so, so even in our business, which we'll get to in, in the space side of things, what our primary objective is, is, is bringing cloud computing to space. But for us, the, the economics are better when you have more compute per unit. And that, that's, that holds true, you know, in data centers. If, if you wanted to put, I mean, nobody does this. Like, I, I think I only know like two very paranoid people that have servers in their house. And it's expensive, right? It's expensive to set that up and set all the things up that require you to have uh, access and, and to be able to, to use that. It makes a lot more sense to have 5,000 servers in a single unit because then you can, you can centralize at least that unit and you can use economies of scale for the heating, the cooling, the power, all that stuff. So per um, unit area or per unit space are just like co-located together. Correct. So hyperscale is is in the massive, you know, you're seeing every company, every major company that you're aware of, you know, Facebook, now Meta, Google, Microsoft, AWS, you know, they have multi-billion dollar single data centers where they're building out massive warehouses that are just go for, you know, rows and rows and rows and rows and rows, as far as I can see of just server banks and things like that. Okay, thank you for thank you for diving into that, and I promise we will get to the compute part of this uh, shortly. This is a very cool conversation. So, when we think about, I also I also like kind of problem solving. So, like how how would you go about solving for some of these choke points in the in the telecom world? Um, I'll toss out that I know a few companies that are working on from in the crypto space that are working on. Um, you know, individually owned and operated kind of mesh network nodes that can all piece together. And then you have enough of them and you start creating a mesh network that the signal moves slower, but at least it's, you know, it's more reliable, can bounce bounce from point to point within these wireless routers. And there's a crypto play there um, for rewarding users who, you know, contribute to the network. 
I've seen other apps on the phone. I have this and my family has this, or maybe I shouldn't say that in a public forum, but whatever. Um, <laughs> these apps on your phone where you can have like a mesh communication network. Um, I might cut out the fact that my family has these on the phone, but we'll deal with that later. Um, <laughs> these apps that you, you can stand up a mesh communication network if you're within like 100 yards, 200 yards with your iPhones, because if the cellular signal goes down, this is also a good, a good chance. My, my understanding from what you're telling me is that for my sig for my phone to talk to your phone, let's say we're 10 feet away from each other. My phone doesn't directly talk to your phone. My phone sends the signal to the cell tower, the cell tower figures out what to do with it and then sends it back to your phone and vice versa. In most cases, if, if assuming the phones aren't like intentionally trying to connect to each other, is that accurate or not really? Um, so it's, it's again, going back to the actual hardware. So there are, there is hardware technology that allows your phone to communicate with the cell tower and then there is a kind of a primary path. So, you know, you, we now have Wi-Fi calling is, a, is a, a secondary path to your cellular calling. So I want to use this bit of hardware to connect my phone via the cell tower, where I want to use uh, a slightly different set of hardware or a mix of hardware to kind of go through the Wi-Fi to then get into the network. Um, you, when you do airdrop, airdrop is a different technology. So if you think about uh, in, a, in a spatial sense, there is, a, there is a better technology at almost every distance that you want to use, right? You get to the point where in space, you want to use lasers because you can point a laser pretty far and, and it takes power. Um, but when you're close, you can use, you know, Bluetooth technology, which is a very localized system. Um, then obviously cellular is one, and then there's different levels of RF that you can use. So, so there is a spatial correlation between a hardware technology you want to use to connect um, you know, again, depending on how far out you are. And it's all a function of electromagnetic, you know, energy levels. So the more energy, you know, the farther out you can go, the, the less energy, but the, you know, the higher frequency, I guess it would be, the, you know, the, or lower frequency, you, you can do closer, but you, and you can do it, you know, more on a, on an individualized point to point basis, but you don't get the range. And there's a, it's a function of energy and kind of electromagnetic physics, so to speak. Is that so good? I, I would, um, you can go super meta with this statement right here. Um, everything is a function of, of energy, period, and primarily a function of frequency, period. From there, you can talk about however you want. When you get into the world of communications, it is heavily in electro, elect, uh, electricity and frequency. Like Those are the, the two critical pieces that allow us to do pretty much anything for anyone that's that's more meta than that, you could go into how that operates, you know, in other worlds. Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't have to get weird on the podcast, um, yeah. but if we could, um, let's save that for another another episode. So, so what would your solution be? I know some of these mesh point to point mesh network solutions that I've seen, whether it be on the hardware side or be you know on the existing iPhone or laptop you have with AirDrop or a mesh network app that works from Bluetooth, whatever it might be. From my perspective, with my manufacturing background, I still see some centralization issues here, um, but I'll leave that aside. So, what are some solutions that you've seen, or you, you know, right now you might visionary think of that could help alleviate some of these centralized choke points in this complex distributed network? If I had to put you on the spot, which I am, no, it's it's fine. I I I, I think about this a lot, um, and this is this is why we're doing what we're doing. If you think about what we we already referenced, Mondo and building out telephone wires. The amount of units you need to be able to build a telephone network 
is freaking insane. It's mind boggling. I mean, you're in the millions upon millions of telephone poles to build out a telephone network. I, again, it's, it's crazy to even think about. And then to, to think further that that is physically connected by a wire is insane. I mean, to, that they, the fact that they did this, you know, 100 plus years ago is crazy to me. Um, if, you, if you take the next step and think about our cell tower network. So roughly in the U.S., it's something like three to 500,000 cell towers. And a lot of those are co-located, meaning you have both AT&T and Verizon on there. You don't have completely independent cell towers. They'll, they'll lease the same space. If you think about that, just with the United States, and we have amazing coverage, right? We're a developed country. We've got as good a coverage as you can probably get, honestly, from, from where we are right now. Adding more cell towers is a very, very, very you know incremental improvement. That, that's Unless you're at a Rangers game in New York and everyone's trying to upload their videos to Snapchat all at the same exact time, but that's a totally derailed another piece of the conversation. <laughs> it, is, it is a different piece of the conversation. So that's actually a technology problem, not a coverage problem, right? Um, so if you, if you think about it, uh, the way it was explained to me when I first got into this industry is like you can put a cell tower on top of the Empire State Building and have coverage, but you don't have bandwidth on that, right? That, that's your point. So, so now you're when a rough example is 5G has bad coverage, but really crazy good bandwidth. So you end up needing a lot more of these 5G units, but you but each one of those units can go crazy on bandwidth. Like that's why you're able to stream just anything you want across a 5G network because there's so much capability. So if you think again, going back to millions upon millions upon millions of, of, of telephone poles in the United States, hundreds of thousands of cell towers, and then you compare what Elon is doing with Starlink, 30,000 units. In, in comparison to satellites, that's insane. The whole aerospace industry is like, oh my goodness, what are you going to do? 30,000 units. Just to put that in perspective, because there's only like 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 satellites in space at all right now. Yeah, exactly. There's like 3,000. If you take out Starlink, there's about 3,000 total, you know, around the entire globe today. Um, and he's about to put up 10x of that. But if you compare it to the telecom industry um, and, and how we do cell towers, where he's dropping in a significant order of magnitude uh, to get down to there. So it's, to me, in my personal perspective, you're not going to go into sub-Saharan Africa or into Brazil and start you know, building telephone poles and cell, to cell towers to get all the connectivity, it would be infeasible. And that's just the one piece of the network we talked about. That doesn't include all the data centers and the ability to have to run all the fiber optic cable and all that stuff. So it's it's an insane measure of humanity to try and redo what, what has already been done for the other half of the world. Because again, right now, we only have about four and a half billion people on the network. Uh, and there's going to be three to four billion people coming on the network. So you only have half, half of the load is, is on. To try and replicate what we did is utter nonsense. And again, if you look at dropping the unit unit capability or the uh, the units required to deliver a service by an order of magnitude using leveraging space, you're in a much better position. And, and I think if I were to decide on a, a, a message that I want to dedicate um, the next several years to getting out to the world is space isn't just for billionaires. We can leverage space for the benefit of everyone here on earth, but you have to go to space to do it. And people think that you don't have to do that. There are technologies required. Everything that Elon's doing to drop costs is, is going to enable things that can be leveraged in space for the direct benefit of humanity 
What we're talking about today, just telecom is one piece. And if you remove the ability for people to have cell phones, you would remove a lot of what society is today. And people don't, don't connect that to, hey, you need a cell tower right now. You need all the stuff in your backyard. And soon I need a satellite. I need a satellite in space to be able to deliver this. So that's a, a personal perspective and, and hopefully answers your question. Completely. I've always thought it was ridiculous folks who say, why are we going to space? We have problems here on earth. I, I've never been able to, I, for very good reason. I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever. And I don't think that anyone who says that's actually dug into what space does and the value it creates, because you don't have Uber without space. You don't have GPS without space. You don't have the ability to go monitor weather without space. You got, you have none of it. Telecoms, another layer. You just, you're, you're getting my, my wheels turning this conversation, spinning my wheels. And I'm thinking, you know, the mesh, the mesh network roundup is one piece of it, a piece of it. And then Elon's solution, putting 30,000 satellites in space instead of a million cell towers around the world is another piece of it. But doesn't that still centralize the power to the power and the data and the communication and the telecom networks through, you know, Starlink satellites? Oh, yeah, there's there's at every point of the network, there is some centralization. Even if you think about it from a blockchain perspective, you may you may install, let's, let's, let's hypothesize that you, that Elon wasn't Elon and Elon was the Elon Dow that was controlled by a million cryptocurrency users, right? Literally a million, call 10 million. And they were building, they were funding, they were designing, they were building, they were launching the entire Starlink network instead of Elon and, and uh, SpaceX. That's a single point of failure. Now you have 10 million people that are, that are controlling centralizing that. Now, people think that, you know, that's decentralized, but the way a DAO works is the DAO is a single entity that may have a lot of voting rights and things like that. And Elon may have less. It's it's just a measure of how much. Um, and, and again, you can measure, you know, he has influence. He has a majority of influence as one person, but the DAO is going to have a, a you know, interest groups that are going to have a majority of influence over the decision that 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 moves that needle. So there's I don't know how you move around from a level of centralization. You can try and move it to a different piece. You can try and, you know, break the centralization up, but then you'll still have centralization. You know, unions inside of companies form because you end up having a, a, a very spread out deregulated units uh, or several units that get, that get conformed into a single unit, to a single voice. And there have been really good instances of that in history and really bad instances of that in history. So the, the whole conversation around centralization, to me, is a tough one. And I mean, it, it's just going to take more thinking of how you do it. Quite frankly, I think the, the, as unfortunate as this is, we need benevolent dictators you know, that are doing those things. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, whatever your opinion of them is, they're, they're, they're benevolent and non-benevolent dictators for how they're running their companies. And, and as a CEO of a corporation, you're more or less a dictator. Whatever you say goes. Uh, the one thing that to not shit on our entire uh, innovative ecosystem, AWS does crazy good stuff, right? Jeff Bezos does amazing things. What AWS has done for for computing and communication in general has has literally propelled you know humanity to another level. Same with the invention of smartphones and Apple and Apple. And what Elon is doing with Starlink and, and SpaceX and launch is also good. You needed centralization, just like Ma Bell needed to centralize the, the development of all these telephone poles and all this stuff. What scares the shit out of me is when you have China Inc. And this is a term you know Peter Diamandis uh, uses. And he says, 
you got to look at China like a single corporation and you have a dictator, quite a literal dictator, over 1.4 billion people and every asset inside of that, which is one of, part of the problem with Yahweh. So centralization, when you have someone who doesn't share the same moral uh, background or fiber that you do, where freedom is a core tenet, um, then, then you have real issues. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk doing their thing, okay, they still share a core tenet of, of values that is shared by you know, a vast majority of humanity. So, so there's like, you know, you're, you're dealing with nuance there. When you get to the other side of it, where freedom is not, you know, something you genuinely care about, privacy isn't even a thing you guys you consider, it gets to be very fickle and you get to get real conflict. So, so that's my, again, my personal opinion. Um, centralization is a fickle bitch. So love it. You're, you're the thing I'm thinking about here, the, the Marine Corps, my buddy, my buddy, he's a communications officer there. Um, and he, he, he's taught me a few things that he's like learned through his, through his, through his education in the Marines. And one of the things he's, he shared with me is the idea of pace planning, primary alternative uh, contingency and emergency, something like this um, yes. communications plan. So when you're going and you're having a, a situation where you need a mobility plan, if you're going out into the wilderness on a, on a trek or whatever, or you are standing up a communications network, or you need a, you know, a food, a food plan for a trip or whatever the case might be, you need a, a light plan and like illumination plan. If you're, if you're going for a night walk or something like this, it's really important to have a primary method. That's kind of your standard go-to an alternative method in case that fails, a contingency method in case that fails, and then an emergency method, which while it might really suck and be really terrible, it'll keep you alive. Worst case scenario. <clears throat> and then there's also this concept of, of extreme ownership that Jocko Willink is, you know, has really built out the thinking around where it's up to you. You have to take the responsibility to build out those systems and build and take responsibility for your own life. If something goes wrong. It's not the Chinese government's fault that they're playing the game that they want to play. It's your fault that you didn't hedge yourself against that game. And so I think as we, we think through these, some of these things, and one of the thoughts that you're inspiring for me is I guess the, 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 the fix to centralization is kind of that individual responsibility to have that pace plan, right? Like understand number one, that if all of this data is centralized and Huawei or AT&T or Verizon or Starlink is able to see that data, understand that, accept that. And, you know, don't share your social, don't share your, you know, all of your information through one central point, maybe whatever, whatever you want to do. It's your personal choice. But one of the things I want to do with this podcast, one of the things I do do is just explore these ideas and help raise awareness around the fact that this might be centralized. You just need to have that in your back of your head. Um, and then the second order implication of that is, hey, if these systems fail, do you have another way that you can communicate that you can make sure that you have what you need to, to get your information where it needs to go. Um, you know, if your Wi-Fi router fails, do you have Ethernet that you can plug into it? If your AT&T fails, do you have a way that you can go call your neighbor if you need to call your neighbor? And the, these types of conversations and thinking, I think, are really important. Um, and, I, and I completely resonate with much better for for folks who have a lot of concentrated power that they've built with three free markets and innovation and 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 through freedom mechanisms, so long as those individuals also care about individual freedom and they're not tyrannical, um, you know, totally cool for them to have that centralized control, centralized power because they you know they've earned it in one sense. But as an individual, you have to check that with yourself. Um, and having you know your awareness about what it what really is going on and where that stuff really comes from, and then having a way to provide in case that's no longer there. 
I think I love I love what you say. There, there's, you know, in the, in the DoD they talk about command and control. Right? There, there's a lot about command and control, <clears throat> and we need to have command and control over our units. So as a as a father and you know the the husband the 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 bread maker here in this family, I think men are generally wired for protection and, and women are, are generally wired for, for nurturing going back 10,000 years when we're all sitting in a cave. Um, <clears throat> but as, as, as a father, you, there is a, a, a sense of command and control over my units and my corner of the world, my home. And we need to extend that. And, and the, the concept of freedom is similar too, right? I mean, every parent has experienced the challenge of freedom that a at a that a son or daughter may want inside of your units, and we do that as as humans, and we're seeing it a huge clash in terms of vaccines and things like that. Communications is, is critical. Power is critical. There are there are sec- sections of our country where if you have if you if you have a solar a completely independent energy solution, you're still required to pay your share of everyone else's shits in terms of how the, the distribution network, even though you're not touching and not using it. So there's you know, lawsuits going on there. So the, the idea of freedom is again, if, if, if your idea, idea of communication is based on, is spatial, you know, how I communicate in my home with my voice, how I communicate over distance using you know, Zoom, how I communicate around the world using satellites, it's a spatial problem. Freedom is similar in that there's a freedom that you can exercise in your home there's, and your home is defined by you having a, you know, a, a set of materials on top of someone else's land, which is why you pay taxes and you pay. It is a, it is a sense of, of leveling. Um, to correlate this on the global side of things, China, make no mistake, China is a ty- borderline tyrannical, depending on who you're talking to, what their opinion is, dictatorship of 1.4 billion people pushing down a single path. There has never been, literally never been, a more powerful single unit in humanity ever. You can go back to where U.S. was after the World Wars, and we were damn close to that, but we chose a different path of how we were going to move forward as a power. You can go back to the Roman Empire and look at how they chose to use that single point of power. But China is, is all of those and more without a care, uh, or I don't know if it's sympathy or empathy or how whatever term you want to use, what's happening to the other guy. And make no mistake about it, if you're not with China, you're the other guy. So people may bitch about not having certain freedoms at, at one of these levels. And one of the problems that we face inside of the U.S. right now is a lack of corresponding vision that is going to drive them. If you look at Elon, we're going to Mars. Everybody who has any interest in Elon knows that Elon wants to go to Mars. And whether you believe, whether you care about why he wants to do that or not is irrelevant. You know that he's going to Mars. If you look at what AWS has done and the, the leadership that Jeff Bezos has had, it is extremely clear what he's done with Amazon and AWS. Some could argue about what he's done with Blue Origin and Kuiper as, as a different side, side story. The US military, Space Force, is anybody clear? I, I think General Raymond, he himself is clear, but he is he is bound by what his superiors are saying, you know, in the Space Council, in the White House. And is it clear what their mission is for space? And that trickles down to NASA. Is that is that really clear? And you have a lot of ambiguity and gray area when it comes to 
the United States in all of its government aspects at every single level, what they're doing. I'll tell you what you don't have in China. You don't have any confusion. It is written into their constitution where they're going with space. It is crazy clear. What China has been able to accomplish in the last decade is a testament to their ability to centralize and execute. And we do not have it. We have it at an, an individual innovators level, like a, a SpaceX or with me or, or friends in the space industry, where we know what we want to do and we can execute on that as a as a as a, as dictators inside of our own company. And I don't care if that that the term dictator charges you or not. This entire conversation should charge the shit out of you. Going back to you know specifically Max, things that you said, where does shit come from? If it's controlled and being controlled under a unit like a China unit, then you may not have it come from there ever again, uh, or in a way that makes it feasible for you to do the thing you want to do, like build computers and microprocessors and cell tower networks and all these different things. So, so your feeling about centralization has to be measured by, by what the, the accomplished goal is. I understand that in your house, you should not be, you should have a, a very broad sense of freedom. I understand in your community, you should have a very broad sense of freedom. In your, your broader region, you should have a very broad sense of freedom. But when it comes to us as a nation and, and our, our brother and sister nations interested in freedom, there needs to be a centralization at that level that can command the direction and execution required to compete with people who definitively do not share our morals that are moving and executing down that path. Sorry for the soapbox. Had to get, out, oh. get that out there. No, it's good to go. I, I appreciate the perspective. I mean, I would say I, I don't think that China is, is at a point where they are more powerful and able to coordinate than the U.S. over the long run. Um, and I think there's an interesting co conversation that we'll have in maybe 20 years after all this plays out about how do different levels and organizational structures um, allow for more sustainable um, growth over a longer period of time, if that makes any sense. And well, it, the it'll final be a period of time, because I, I want to I talk about that. So two areas specifically that scare the shit out of me is in their 20 years up to now, and their 20 years going forward, they have set very specific milestones. They only missed one. Yeah. One. Do you know how many the U.S. has missed? A crazy oh, number. Complete, well, I mean, I, well, again, that's, I yeah. think... This is a de definitely a more a more yeah. a a conversation for a follow up here when we have some more time because I want to also get into your current work in space and some of the compute <laughs> work, bringing it to that level of the network. But um, I think that you, I have a, a a concept that I that I talk about and I'm thinking about quite a lot of when it comes to the sustainability of of, of a civilization or a, or a or or a complex system. For a while, a complex system that's built on on really bad stuff, you know, slavery, um, genocide, um, tyranny of all forms. Yeah, you have some really fast exponential growth at first for the first part of it. But then at some point, you fully saturate the effectiveness of that tyranny. And when you fully saturate the effectiveness of that tyranny, that growth then plateaus. And eventually, once that growth is plateaus after that tyranny has been saturated, you start to reach a really steep decline. Um, and I don't know that we've hit that decline yet. Versus, so let's, let's, yeah. let's pull that thread a little bit, though. So, so one, there's no reason at all that China can't adopt what the rest of the world is doing, right? So let's take slavery and labor specifically. That has been the, the mode of energy 
um, energy uh, usage and development for all history. Only recently are we starting to use cool things like solar and nuclear. If slavery and human people population drove energy, we're now to a point where what developing countries are doing is really pushing robotics, right? There is no reason that China can't flip that same switch at some point and extend their, their capabilities. So that's one big concept where, yeah, I agree that that shit doesn't last. However, they can switch out and leverage with what they've traditionally done is leverage what all the innovators are doing, whether they bought it, uh, stole it, or stole it. they acquired yeah. it. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so that's one big piece of it. The other, I mean, let me make sure I'm, I'm saying this correctly. So the other, the other piece is, um, first to market, or I don't know the term, let's use AWS. AWS didn't make profit for a long time. All it did was went and got market share, just, just went out there and, and grabbed market share at little to no profit for 15 years. They are so far ahead that Microsoft has to double down just to catch you know, another point of that market. And AWS could sit back and ride that way for quite some time. But to think that AWS isn't going to you know, kick in the high gear again with some other innovation is, is foolish. To, to maintain their, their high road. So if China's doing the same thing and they're first to market, I, I, I believe in, in market, in my opinion, the, the, the next thousand years is going to be defined by who controls cislunar space over the next decade or, or maximum two decades. If that person is China, then it's their morals and they're going to write the next thousand years. And it'll take all the energy of everybody else to try and catch up. So you have two massive, massive pieces that are still in play that China could adopt. And China could, could once they're ahead, it is going to be even more difficult to catch them. It, I mean, exponentially more difficult and exponential in the very true sense of the word. And if they adopt some of these other mechanisms and move away from some of their things, then they're only going to move their lead forward uh, even more. Well, I guess we shall see. Um, I, we should think that, about this. I think a very solid future. I mean, I have very serious doubts that the Chinese Communist Party is going to flip a switch and embrace freedom and individualism and liberty. Um, oh, I, not not at all. Who uses the technologies that the that the American system has innovated and produced over the last hundred years, the in the most in the most innovative ways moving forward and in the most. Um, rapidly deployed ways moving forward, assuming that that the that the saturation curve that I mentioned earlier is not reached, uh, will win. Um, but I do think that uns uh, fragile systems are fragile and obviously, and when you have stress that then goes on to that fragile system, when it breaks, it breaks hard and it's hard to put those pieces back together. Um, and when you have a lot of centralization, systems become very fragile. When you have centralization coupled with decentral, decentralized alternative contingency and emergency plans, um, that's a sustainable. And as Nassim Taleb says, Taleb, Taleb says, um, it's a very anti-fragile system that when it breaks, it grows back stronger because folks learn and then they innovate to fix those mistakes. Um, so that, I don't know. This is yeah. This, I, this, I, so, so, so I agree 100%. And I, I believe, I mean, I, I actually think I was the one who introduced you to Naomi. So I'm, I'm very familiar with her and her work. Yeah, you are. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm 100% on board with that. I don't think we should rest on our laurels. And I also don't think we have a, yet a truly sustainable system. I think our system is just as fragile. 
and, and in many ways more fragile because there is the, the decentralization, there is the separation of power, there is the, the separation of vision too of, of who's doing what. So if, if, it, if it works to your point, it's more like a, like a fabric, which is stronger than a, than a string, right? So there's, there is a, I'm, I'm all for what we, and my, my wife is Brazilian, I am Asian and moving our cultures forward. Uh, we need to do everything. We need to do everything you're saying. We need to do everything I'm saying. We need to do everything. And people, you know, kind of segueing into what I'm actually doing in space. We're doing cloud computing, right? And you've already heard me reference data centers, two different types of data centers, and then edge computing and edge generation. In, in the world of space satellites today, there's a lot of onboard computing built by embedded compute systems. And what we're building is massive amounts of cloud computing where we're taking terrestrial grade servers and putting them in space. And our IP is around how do you actually do that because it doesn't actually work if you just throw it in space. Um, there is there is a intimate relationship between edge computing, the, the piece that's going here and the cloud computing. They are not necessarily competitors. We're not competing right now with our laptops and streaming this video and all that stuff with what's happening in, in hyperscale data centers. They are complementary to each other. And when we process this and when we host it, it's going to a hyperscale data center or a caching data center. So there's a lot of intimate relationships here versus, versus competing relationships. So, so I come from the, the background that like we need everything. You know, for all the conversation we just had about telecom and centralization, decentralization, we need all of these pieces because those things form from a very strong fiber um, uh, fabric versus a weak independent string. Let's define compute. We mentioned it a little bit when we were talking about how the telecom stack works. To me, compute is you have data and you crunch that data and you have an output using, you know, not, I mean, even your human brain does that. Do you see it everywhere? So is, is that the definition of compute that we can use for this conversation? It is, it is. But one of the core pieces that, that I think, again, most people take for granted, especially when you're talking about space, is getting the data. The data. So the getting of the data is extremely difficult. We can stream like crazy because we have a very robust network here on Earth. We don't have a network at all in space. Everything is what I call the umbilical cord model. So you got a badass satellite taking badass pictures or even video, you can't get it down. You have a limited amount of power and computation capability on board to be able to kind of do some processing just to be able to get that down to the ground. You have a very intermittent connection down to the ground and it's based on, it's, it's limited by physics of radio frequency signal and sending data through, through RF. So you're basically getting to the point where our sensors are up at 100 gigabits plus per second of data generation. Our transmission is in the hundreds of megabits per second. So there's a, there's a gap you're never gonna close, just there. And they're putting better onboard computing to try, to try and qualify the, what they should delete on board to be able to send down what the best stuff to send down is. Um, so just then, to qualify that, someone designs a satellite, they're putting a faster computer on the satellite now so that on the, on the satellite they can kind of filter filter and clean up the data that the satellite's taking pictures of and collecting images of using on the compute, they're using some really fancy artificial intelligence. Once they have the output from that, that's what they're gonna send down on the limited uplink and downlink um, kind of laser or radio frequency tether that they uh, that they have. Yeah, so they don't have laser through clouds, doesn't work well. So yeah. they usually only use RF. 
which is basically a big satellite dish on the on the on earth that sits there and waits for the satellite to come pass over it until it can beam the signal down yeah but you you made a term very fancy ai the hardware isn't capable even the best cutting edge stuff today isn't capable of really fancy ai that just flat out can't exist the best use case that I'm aware of right now is a is an Intel VPU visual processing unit that went on one of these embedded compute boards, ESA bought and put it on. I think it was an Iridium satellite, and it was an optical satellite, so it was taking actual pictures. And the only thing that this badass compute and it was state of the art and is state of the art could do was it was trained pre-trained to identify clouds. So it was pre-trained with object detection, and the object was clouds. So it ran all it ran against all the images that were taken from the satellite. And then it deleted the pictures with clouds. Because if you're taking a picture of Earth, you'd rather have not have an obstacle of a cloud in it. That saved them 30% of the downlink. By far the best use case I can think of for what, what I consider edge computing, onboard computing. And it's required. We need that. We need that. Even if you're bouncing data across. Optically, which because you don't have atmosphere, you can send more than, than hundreds of, of megabits. You can get to uh, one and two and a half gigabits per second is where we're at now. Uh, Nebula is partnered with a company that'll be doing um, 10 gigabits and we'll be pushing 100 gigabits crosslink because you're you're in a vacuum of space. And crosslink correlation, means like satellite to satellite. Correct. Got correct. It. Um, and, and correlation fiber optic, we use glass for fiber to control the light signal. When you don't, you need glass because you're in an atmosphere and obviously underground, but in the vacuum of space, you don't actually need glass. So you can do this, you know, optically without, without glass. So, so that's a, a part of how it's done. What we're building out is um, uh, with our partners is a network where Nebula can do genuine cloud computing. You know, our partnership with Microsoft, our partnership with IBM, we're running their full cloud stack. So all you need to do is what you do here on earth is you're spinning up an instance to do the magnificent AI, you know, and train this AI on the fly. And then you can even collapse that and get your answer and be done with it, just like you would do here. Uh, Or you have that algorithm and then you want to instantiate that algorithm across all the data that comes in. So we're, we're enabling the full benefits of cloud computing in space. And what that means is you're going to get an access to an access to data you've never had access to first. You're going to have better access to that data quicker. So you have more data, you'll have access to to data quicker, and you'll be able to get intelligence moved a hell of a lot quicker. There's a lot of use cases for our business that that makes sense. But for the future of humanity, going tying back to our very, very first part of our conversation about a wired world, if you think and want humanity to do anything beyond Earth, go into space, go onto the moon, go to asteroids, go to Mars, you're not going to have a wire. Like it's just not an option. So in order for us to have this experience that we have today, you need to be able to solve this problem that Nebula is solving. And if I were to 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 think, give a, another basis of, of a core belief of mine, energy is the wave that rises all boats. Access to cheap, effective energy raises all boats. It increases it increases humanity's benefit. I know you had a a, a podcast with Alex Alex Epstein and his perspective on that. I agree. Energy is required. Um, beyond energy, once you have energy solved, I believe personally that compute capability accelerates all those same boats. doesn't matter if you're doing ag tech, if you're building houses, if you're doing health, if you have good energy and you have good processing, you can accelerate everything. And again, going back now tying into the SpaceX conversation and what Starlink is doing, if Starlink is building a communication network connecting pieces, 
And Nebula is now being a piece of the processing node uh, for data processing, just like a data center would be, uh, then you're, you're capable of providing a level of cap capability and service to more humanity than we've ever done before. So there's, there's just trying to tie together all those, those bits that we touched on. Cool. So, so moving forward as we're in an ever digitized world um, or digitally augmented world, God willing, instead of a digitally sub supplanted world, um, I think there's two themes there that I will <laughs> unpack at some point with another guest. Um, compute is imperative and it is a key component and, a, and human flourishing is now a function of not only energy, but access to compute. Um, yes. Roger that. Why can't right now someone take an NVIDIA GPU so that can run crazy AI and just stick it on their satellite? Um, so they are doing that, um, specifically space development agencies like, oh, we're going to get a thousand satellites. We're going to put a, an, NVIDIA, an extra NVIDIA GPU across all of them. So computing doesn't actually work that way. Um, you need to be able to ingest a, a file to be able to then have enough compute capability to process against that file. And the files, especially specifically when you're talking about Earth observation and you're taking these massive files through synthetic aperture radar, infrared, hyperspectral, you're looking at a, a big file, you need to be able to ingest that whole file. You cannot even ingest the file properly to do to run the algorithm if you're using just these little, little embedded compute boards in NVIDIA GPU. Just, you can't actually run the workload like that. So is it a is it a spatial issue where where it's a hardware issue? It's an, it's an actual again going back to what people think is of this cloud and wireless. No, this is legit a hardware issue. But but is it a, is it a on the footprint of the satellite? They don't have enough space to put the ingestion ingestion node plus the plus the the high powered compute node plus the output node, and they just don't have enough space on the satellite bus. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what the issue is? Yes. So the, there is a, a physical mass issue because um, you, you often have to protect, you have to solve for a thermal issue, which these satellites are not, not capable of uh, at, the, at that level. You also have to solve for a radiation shielding and protection issue, which these satellites are not prepared for. Um, and then you have a power issue. So again, for power budget in general, these, you, you brought up the NVIDIA GPU stuff. It's like 25 watts. And the power budget for most onboard systems is, is about 25 to 50 watts. The system that Nebula is building is in multi-kilowatts. I mean, there is such an order of magnitude difference between the compute capability that we're building on our system versus what everybody else will do is it's massively significant. And then the next thing that you got to ask is, does do you have a data center? Do, do anyone you know that ha have a data? Does anyone you know even have a server, right, is, is one question, just one server in their house. You don't because you have the ability to use this network. And this network has been such an accelerant to human society that we shouldn't go and try and replicate an individual you know, umbilical cord model again. We should go and rep rep uh, recreate a network model. So even if you could bring all of this computing on board, why would you when you could utilize, utilize it off board uh, way more effectively, cost effectively, efficiently, power efficiently, everything? Interesting. Well, I'm sure we will maybe revisit the compute conversa conversation as your story on that front develops. Um, watching very closely, as you know, very exciting. Uh, the if you to end, let's let's end with this. If you had to define what capabilities we need to really open up space, 
in your in your view and with the work you're, you're doing at Nebula from what from what you've seen um, and putting the visionary hat on, what are the what are the key capabilities that we need in space and on orbit to really allow us access to the moon, to Mars and beyond? So I probably should have started with this. You know, my purpose that's driving me for for literally the rest of my life at this point is to provide all of humanity access to deep space and infinite resources. Because I believe when you get in access to you get all of humanity access to infinite resources, you can remove 95% of the reason we have conflict uh, around, uh, around humanity today. So that's driving. The first thing that we're focused on today is cloud computing. And the framework by which I've identified the things in which humanity needs to propel itself forward and accelerate forward is broken into what I call, it's just it's literally what it is, bits, atoms, joules, cents being dollars and cents, transportation and labor. So if you look at those six things, and if you take those six things and apply it to pretty much any point in our history, when you had an, an, um, a leap in any one of those areas or the combination of those areas, you saw human society get to another level. Recently, we all experienced uh, nuclear and, and solar energy, uh, the invention in of the internet, but also mobile technology as a, as a single pushing factor. So the energy and comms have always been intimately linked when you had a leap in those two, which is goes back to my statement, energy is the way that rises all boats first, and comms and communication and processing are the, the accelerants to those boats. Uh, but you still need the atoms, the ability to do the, the movement of atoms and manufacturing of atoms, going back to your core thesis about where stuff comes from. Uh, and then the, the sense, you need the financial mechanisms. You know, we can, we can go into blockchain and crypto and, and current financial mechanisms, grants and, and funds and VC, all that stuff. Uh, you also need labor, going back and touching on the point you met, made about slavery and things like that. Labor in the future economy is not going to be based on human activity. It's going to be based on robotic activity which then ties it back to AI, which ties it back to bits, which ties it back to energy. And all of these things are now intimate related. And as far as I understand, it's those six core things. And, and for me personally, it is a framework by which I use and will use to execute on my plan for the next several decades of how to move humanity into space independently and sustainably. Roger that. Well, Mike, thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, any final thoughts on your end? Any final comments? And where can folks find you and follow along with what you're working on? Right now, you can find me on LinkedIn is, is the best. Uh, we're technically in stealth mode as a company. And I'm happy to share that we're bringing cloud computing to space. And that'll come out soon. Uh, we will start communicating in a, in a different mechanism. But you can find me on LinkedIn. If you're listening to this and interested in what Max has to say, then I'm interested in connecting with you. And I will say thank you to you, Max, for what you're doing. I think where stuff comes from is such a critical path. And, and honestly, nobody I'm aware of is digging into it the way that you are and how you think and how you go about your prep for all these different sessions is amazing. So kudos to you, congrats to you, and please keep doing what you're doing. I, I appreciate that. And thank you for exploring the next frontier with me and helping us understand where telecom and the digital and how the digital bits that fuel our world uh, actually work. So thank you very much and we shall see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you would like to follow along, learn more, dive deeper into our content, 
We are now live on Substack.com. You can head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com. That's M-A-X-G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G.substack.com, where we're publishing all of our podcasts from now on, all of our blogs, some long-form essays, and some other fun goodies along the way. The podcast is still going to live on anchor.fm forward slash next frontier, alternatively at nextfrontierpodcast.com, where we'll use it to distribute our free content to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. for now and to eternity, as long as Spotify and Anchor continue to host us. Anyway, housekeeping updates complete. The conclusion of that is head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com to subscribe and follow along for our content.